Hello, everyone. Jody Heiss bringing you another edition of the Freedom Caucus podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's hard to believe as we are heading into summer that we have, what, five or six months behind us now under the coronavirus making the headlines. And uh, doctors and policymakers alike, uh, there's still more questions than we have answers. And I'm really excited with the guest that we have with us today uh, to discuss this. He is uniquely fitted for the moment. Uh, Joel Zinberg is both a doctor and a lawyer. He's a native of New York. He has practiced medicine for nearly 30 years, and he has also taught at Columbia Law School. He uh, has spent his career at the intersection of law, medicine, and healthcare policy, which makes him obviously a uniquely qualified individual to be with us today. He now serves as a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and most recently, Dr. Zinberg served as general counsel and senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors under President Trump. And so we're thrilled to have you, Dr. Zinberg. Really appreciate you taking time to be with us on the Freedom Caucus podcast today. Oh, great to be here. Well, listen, you recently published what I thought was an outstanding op-ed in USA Today. And basically the argument, the perspective you were coming from is that while the vaccine for coronavirus is very important, we all understand that, it in itself is not the end all to, to this problem. We, we must deal with the economic side of things and uh, we cannot keep the economy closed until there's a vaccine. I think that is a great point and it is a point that frankly goes against some of the conventional wisdom that's out there today. Uh, elaborate a little bit more on that. Tell us more of your thoughts on this. So we all know that the, the lockdown and the, the uh, distancing efforts that the government has imposed has had tremendous economic fallout. Uh, we're talking about another 40 million people unemployed. You're talking about uh, going from an incredibly healthy economy with record low unemployment rates to now sort of like a Depression-era economy. Uh, and at that same time, it's been impacting the health of our fellow citizens. So people are putting off necessary care. Uh, and that inevitably will have deleterious effects for them. Uh, and everyone's being told, well, don't worry, wait for the, vi- the vaccine. The vaccine's going to come along and, and that will solve the problem. But the problem with the vaccine is that it takes a long time to develop under the best of circumstances. And it follows the normal FDA process of uh, drug development, which can, in many cases, take eight to ten years. Now, vaccines are often a little bit quicker, uh, and we we have seen some real fast progress here, particularly uh, the company Moderna went in about 44 days, got its vaccine candidate from the laboratory into testing, but you're still talking about something that's probably six to 12 months away from being approved. Even and after they start testing it on humans. I mean, just, just because they start testing on people does not mean it's ready for production. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, and I think it, people have to step back and say most vaccine and most drug candidates do not get approved. If you look at the overall process, it's about one in ten. 
Now, maybe we'll do better this time, and I sure hope we will. But even if we do get one or two vaccines making through this process and get it, getting approved, it's going to be a, about a year from now. And even then, you have to ramp up production so that you have a large number of doses available for general use in the public. So that's the first hurdle. But even if you get past that first hurdle of approval, you have to realize that vaccines are not 100% effective. So if you look at something like the flu vaccine, which people are familiar with, and it's another respiratory virus, uh, you're talking about rates of 10 to 60% effectiveness over the last about 15 years of seasonal flu vaccines. Even in 2009, when we had a vaccine that was specifically made for uh, what was a pandemic flu virus, you're still only getting about the 40 to 60% effectiveness. So it's not going to be 100% effective. And then perhaps the biggest hurdle is no vaccine can be uh, helpful if people don't take it. Right. And again, looking at the flu about over the last you know dozen or so years, only about 45% of the people in this country get vaccinated. And that's what well-established, you know, programs to promote vaccines and to encourage people. So, and, and the problem is that, you know, now COVID is in the news. Everyone's concerned about it. But, no, in the six months or a year from now, God willing, we're not going to have so many COVID cases. And people may be a little less uh, interested in exposing themselves to a vaccine. So we may get less demand for the vaccine than people are hoping. You may, end up, you, know, you may end up with a very low number of people actually getting vaccinated. Well, you know, I think that's a that's a great point. I mean, even if we get a vaccine, if people don't take it, what good is it going to do? And and you're exactly right. A huge percentage of American uh, people generally uh, don't take vaccines. Uh, and what, what about this part of it all? We were told that the whole purpose of shutting down the economy of the lockdowns, all of us staying at home was to flatten the curve so we, that we don't overwhelm our hospitals. Well, we, we did that. We accomplished that. Hospitals are not overwhelmed. Hospitalizations uh, are not. So what is the holdup now? I mean, it seems like the story has shifted from preventing the overwhelmed hospital system to now We've got to wait till a vaccine is ready before we open up. What has occurred to make us change the narrative? Well, I mean, you, you have some people who are real zealots who, as you say, are insisting everything has to stay locked down uh, until a vaccine appears. You have other people who are a bit more measured and they want to have certain uh, metrics met uh, and that when, when those metrics are met, you can open up. But I, I think what we have seen is that states that have opened up by and large have not had a jump in the number of hospitalizations. They've not had a jump in the number of deaths. There is some concern in some states that you may be seeing increases in the number of coronavirus cases, but that could be partly an artifact of better testing. You're, you're actually uncovering more cases that were already there. So, right. uh, I mean... There's a good uh, new study from the National Bureau of Economic Research of what happened in Wisconsin when the Supreme Court there uh, struck down the statewide uh, measure, lockdown measures. And those, those researchers found that there was not a big jump in the number of hospitalizations or deaths. And, and that, only, that data in their study only took them through the end of May. If you look at 
even, I looked this morning, and this still is not a big jump. And here we are halfway through June. So, uh, you know, I think there are some folks who just do not understand the economic pain uh, that the lockdowns are inflicting and or, or, and or they don't seem to care. I, I'm not sure which. Well, totally agree with you. And certainly what you uh, said as far as not an increase in hospitalizations and so forth has been true in my home state of Georgia. And of course, we were, uh, Georgia was uh, the first really to open up to the extent that they have. And we, we continue to see a decline in hospitalizations and so forth. Uh, one thing, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this, one of the things that has really concerned me is that how politicized this whole thing has become, uh, even to the extent of uh, data, information, and what is presented and given to the public seems to radically change. And that in itself, I think, is very, very dangerous. I mean, wh whether we're talking the World Health Organization uh, and China's influence and their role with that, uh, or, or even public health officials here in the United States choosing, uh, right now we're watching one set of protests, it's okay uh, for them to uh, not socially be distanced from one another. Another set of protesters, uh, it seems that uh, officials say they must be required to have social distancing. I mean, everything just seems all over the map. And to me, I look at it, it is all politically based. Uh, so how, how and where with our listeners right now, how can we be responsible citizens uh, and specifically to know where do we get accurate information in the midst of all this politicized uh, data that we're receiving? Yeah, well, I, th I think you're correct, Congressman. There's no question that politics have entered here. Uh, so for example, in your home state, when when the governor decided to relax the lockdown measures, uh, the Atlantic published an article saying this was experimenting in human sacrifice. Yes. I mean, I cannot imagine a, a more inflammatory headline than that. And of course, uh, I have not seen the Atlantic publish any kind of retraction since then. Of course not. But of course, more concerning has been the approach to public gatherings. Uh, and in, in uh, recent times, there have been a number of officials and policymakers and health professionals who were pushing very hard for bans on public gatherings in the past, and particularly when those gatherings were people who were protesting lockdowns and, and were you know, voicing their First Amendment rights to uh, try to get the economy opened again, right. and, you know, let them, let them go back to work. Let them go to church, you know, let, let them uh, perhaps visit their dying loved ones. And, you know, no, no one is necessarily saying that it's an all or none thing. All these things can be accomplished if you do it with proper precautions. But now that you have uh, demonstrations for a politically favored uh, cause, some of those same health professionals are now signing letters and publishing articles saying, well, uh, actually the risks are not so great at, at public demonstrations and gatherings, and it's okay. So there's this notorious letter out of the University of Washington uh, drafted by the people in their allergy and infectious disease department that's had almost 1,300 health professionals sign on to it, saying that, essentially saying, like, well, it, we don't care. It's okay to demonstrate if you're demonstrating against police brutality and racism, uh, that the, the risk of transmission are minimal, uh, and, and, and it's, it's something we have to, to live with, whereas they, 
they condemned the people who were demonstrating for other causes and for for their you know economic freedom as as racists and white nationalists. So Unbelievable. It, that is the starkest. Uh, uh, example of the politicization of this process. And it's really quite dangerous because all along we've been told, follow the data, listen to the experts, and now you have experts who have revealed themselves to be politically motivated. Absolutely. So I, and as a result, we don't know where to get accurate information. Where do you get the data? Where can people go to just get nothing but the facts? Well, sadly, you have to... You, <laughs> I think you have to be know who your experts are, and, and you have to be hopeful that those experts are actually looking at what's been published and the available data. So the 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 information, the articles I have been publishing, uh, you know, I, I sit down and, and review lots of lit medical literature and lots of CDC information, information from other places. Uh, before I publish anything, and I'm trying to be as objective as possible uh, and not put a political uh, taint on it. But uh, it, it is quite difficult. I mean, I, I do think, you know, the, the CDC is making a good faith effort to uh, get out reliable information, but then, you know, it requires someone to interpret that and put that all in context. Yeah, and even the CDC, quite frankly, has been uh, kind of all over the map with their own guidelines, uh, with even some examples that you, you just shared. Well, listen, as we come into the fall, uh, we as, as summer uh, eventually passes, we start entering the fall, uh, we are being told that we're going to see a spike in cases again, uh, and anticipating that, we know now a lot more about how this disease spreads and how to treat people, uh, and I think we're getting a little bit more handle on that sort of things. But we have the bigger question hanging out there regarding opening schools, about uh, you know kids learning, businesses opening, uh, people working, all this sort of thing. And in reality, I think it's impossible for us to open the economy if we don't open the schools. I mean, uh, people are going to, uh, parents are going to have to stay at home with their kids if the schools are not opening. Uh, so how do we navigate through all this with uh, an increase in coronavirus cases perhaps being likely and yet moving through that safely in a proactive way while still opening up uh, our economy and opening our nation again? Well, I think here's a perfect example of what you have to do about looking at the data. So don't focus on the number of coronavirus cases focus on the number of coronavirus hospitalizations and deaths. So what we do know about this, out, this uh, disease outbreak is that it is heavily concentrated, or the adverse consequences are heavily concentrated in the elderly, and I mean people over 60, 65, and it's heavily concentrated in people who have pre-existing medical conditions, usually two or more conditions. So we know that in Europe, 85%, uh, excuse me, Europe, 95% of the deaths were in people over age 60. In New York City, the epicenter of the disease in this country, 85% of the deaths were in people over age 60. And then when you factor in the pre-existing conditions, you know that uh, you get even higher percentages uh, of the deaths. So we didn't know we have a definite vulnerable population that needs to be protected. But that doesn't mean you need to lock down the entire economy. 
Uh, and I think one of the great fiascos uh, of this pandemic has been our failure to protect this vulnerable population. Uh, so in my home state of New York, the governor was ordering nursing homes to take in COVID patients from hospitals. Mm. Uh, so the result is that if you look nationwide, about 40 to 50 percent of the deaths are in nursing home and long-term care populations. So these are the people we have got to pay special attention to going forward. And it does mean that, that you can relax restrictions on school-age kids because virtually none of the deaths and very few of the hospitalizations are in people under age 21. So those people are safe to go back and participate in the regular society and in the economy uh, as are, by the way, most people in the workforce up to age you know, 55. Again, the, the rates of hospitalization and deaths are very low. They're in small fractions of what they are in, uh, in the elderly population. So as long as we are going out and protecting that vulnerable population, uh, we will accomplish most of the health gains that the, the total lockdown did. Secondly, we have to make it people feel safe to return to work, yeah. and that means providing them with adequate PPE, the, you know, uh, protection equipment, uh, making sure they have job guarantees and paid sick leave, making testing available so that sick folks are not at work infecting other people. And finally, as part of that effort, we've got to have, once we get the total number of uh, cases down in a particular area, you have to make testing available uh, with contact tracing so you can isolate people who would be potential spreaders. But I think the far and away the most important thing is focusing on that vulnerable population and allowing other people, uh, particularly the young, to get back to normal so that they, they don't have their education uh, interrupted. Absolutely. Isn't it fair to say that that vulnerable population is uh, equally as vulnerable with the flu every year? It is. Yeah. Now, it was the interesting thing, of course, about the flu is that uh, the seasonal flu, influenza, it's typically the elderly are adversely affected and also the very young. What we're seeing with this coronavirus is that it's just the very young, the, uh, the elderly. The very old. Right. Yeah, the great it's point. That's young. a young. And, 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 and when people say to you, oh, you know, we're worried this is going to be like the 1918 influenza pandemic, it's nothing like the 1918 influenza pandemic. The, 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 Analogy was made because this was a new virus that people did not have immunity to, but it quickly became apparent that unlike 1918, where healthy young individuals, people ages 20 to 40, were the, the most vulnerable population, that those folks were never vulnerable to this coronavirus. It's the elderly. So we have, an, we have a clearly identified vulnerable group that we ought to be uh, from, uh, looking at. And, and if you look you know, nationwide, you're talking about people in nursing homes, it's about 1.3 million people in long-term care facilities. It's about another million people. So you have, you know, about two, two and a half million people we should be concentrating on trying to protect. Excellent point. And, Excellent point. Listen, I know we've got to start uh, wrapping up here. I, I don't want to get away from this conversation. You recently served two years as a general counsel and senior economist at the uh, Council of Economic Advisors for President Trump. And there is no way I could let you get off of this 
uh, interview with the, the people, not uh, just hearing a little bit more about that. What an interesting position and an interesting time for you to be serving there. Can you just tell us a little bit more about your work in that role? Well, it was really one of the highlights of my life, I must say. It was, uh, you know, the ability to work for uh, a president who was really interested in deregulation and in, in finding solutions and in, in increasing choice and competition in health care. So uh, I got to, uh, along with, you know, Kevin Hassett, who was chairman at the time, and uh, and Tom, uh, acting chairman, to work with them on, on a variety of initiatives to improve health care in the country. Uh, and that included, you know, authoring the uh, uh, chapters in the uh, economic report of the president in 2018 and 2019. And I would point out, by the way, that contrary to some of the news reports that the administration was unconcerned uh, with pandemics and unconcerned with vaccines, uh, I worked with a a number of other people. We put out a paper uh, in the summer, early fall, uh, entitled Mitigating Pandemic Influenza with Improved vaccine in the innovation uh, and said so that we were very much aware of, of the problems of potential pandemics uh, and we worked with folks at the National Security Council who were heavily involved in that effort uh, so this you know people were very much aware of this at the time and, and taking steps to to deal with how we can uh, harness the innovative powers of the American economy and American pharmaceutical companies to, to address these problems. Well, Dr. Joel Zinberg, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming on the program today. Your expertise and the clarity of your message is uh, greatly needed at this point in our country, and we thank you so much for joining the Freedom Caucus podcast today. You're very welcome, Congressman. Happy to do it. Well, thank you so much, and to each of you listening, as always, we deeply appreciate you joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the program, and we'd encourage you to take time to rate, subscribe, and review this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. For more information about Freedom Caucus content, of course, you can always follow us on Facebook.com slash Freedom Caucus and on Twitter at Freedom Caucus, and we encourage you to do so. Until next time, hope you have a fantastic day.